0: Job chapter 31, beginning in verse 13. Here's what the Word of God has to say. If I have rejected the calls of my maid servant, manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God raises up? When He makes inquiry, what shall I answer Him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? Job, as I said, is the oldest book we have in our scripture. And I think that's important to make the case this morning because I want to speak to you about the sanctity of life. And if I want to be very clear that... Um, as I'm speaking today, as I'm preaching today, this is not a, a political word. It's not a current issues uh, word. This is a eternity word. In other words, this issue and this truth has been true not since um, the politics of the United States or even the modern era, but this has been true since the foundation of the world because of the declaration of God. So Job is one of our oldest books in the Bible. And therefore, we get a glimpse here of even Job understood this very basic principle that life, every life, is sacred. Now, you know, some anniversaries you ought to celebrate. Um, they're, they, they're, they're remembrances of good things to celebrate and rejoice, so birthdays and wedding anniversaries and those sort of things. There are other anniversaries that when they come, they are moments for grief and sadness because they are a reminder, they are a milestone of things that are are tragic or that are are grief-producing in your life. Yesterday was one of those types of anniversaries. 49 years ago yesterday, the Supreme Court of our nation decided or ruled on the case that is known as Roe versus Wade. When they did that, they arrogated to themselves the authority to create a new right, not articulated in our Constitution, and they made legal nationwide the, the murder of babies within their own mother's wombs. It's estimated that since that ruling in 1973, that somewhere beyond 62,502,904 babies have been aborted. Now, that number just counts up to 2017, and those are the last numbers or reliable numbers that are available. I want to put that number in perspective for you. The number of babies whose lives have been ended by legal abortion in the United States over the last 49 years is equal to the sum total of the combined present population of Pennsylvania, Illinois, Ohio, Georgia, North, uh, North Carolina, and Connecticut all put together. All put together. Equal to the number of babies that have been aborted in our nation. or under just under then six times the total population of Georgia. Take our state, multiply it by six and you have about the number of babies that have been aborted in our our land. Now, admittedly, when Roe was decided, the church was unprepared to make the argument for life. In fact, when you look over the history of these last 49 years, it took the church, and Christians a while to catch up, to realize that a vigorous argument needed to be made for the sanctity of life. The church has not always stood well on this issue. The church has not always been articulate on this issue. And I use the word church there in the universal sense of those who believe on Jesus for salvation. But over these last 49 years, by God's grace, Christians have risen up, we have articulated well the, the, uh, the sanctity of life, the argument for the sanctity of life, and we are hopeful. We are very hopeful at this moment. There is, a, there is a case before the Supreme... Well, it's already gone before the Supreme Court. They are deciding now. In fact, it is probably already decided. Just the opinions are being written. A, a case by the name of Dobbs. They'll likely rule this summer on that case. And there are many hopeful that... Um, that when Dobbs is decided on a ruled, that the Supreme Court might reverse themselves on Roe. So friends, we ought to pray for that. That would be a good word indeed. The number of innocent lives that would be saved by that decision are uncountable. Now, that doesn't mean if they if that decision goes the way we hope and pray it goes, it doesn't mean that the the need for making the case for sanctity of life would end. Because what that will mean is that it goes to the states, and even now states have passed some, some, uh, some laws that are just heartbreaking. There are some states where you can take the life of a baby right up to the very second they are born. So the, the need for, that, for the, making the case for sanctity of life will continue. And, dear friends, sanctity of life is not just about abortion. That's the big presenting issue today. The sanctity of life has issues of at the beginning of life. It also has uh, concerns at the end of life. We have a rising um, uh, mentality amongst our nation today that that supports and celebrates some um, physician-assisted suicide. That is a that is a sanctity of life issue. Um, we have uh, issues in, in not just aborting babies because of of preference, but because of um, issues like. Uh, sex selection and um, realities of deformity that ought to break our hearts, that is an issue of uh, sanctity of life. And then just around the globe today, there are, still, there are places in the world today, there are people in, on the, on the, around the globe today that are pr- presently experiencing genocide. That is an issue of sanctity of life. Now, before I go any further, I do want to say a word of compassion and of grace. I understand that there are many of you here today that have personally been affected by abortion. Some of you may have had abortions. Others of you, you may have had family members who have had abortions. Maybe you have pressured someone to have an abortion. Statistics in our nation say that about nearly one in four women in the United States will have an abortion by the age 45. So in any group of people, that means that there's likely that somebody in the room has been personally affected by this reality. Now, I want to make the case today, and I intend to make the case today, uh, for life as passionately as I can. In fact, um, one of the points in my sermon today is going to be about the judgment of God. And we, we do not back down from what the Word of God says, and I want to make it as plain and as simple as I can make it today. But, but hear me very carefully. Even as I want to be clear on the danger of sin and the danger that is in the judgment of God, I also want to be very clear that there is no sin that is outside of the forgiving power of the blood of Jesus. So I don't care who you are or what you have done. There is hope today in the gospel of Jesus. There is no sin, no matter how vile or wicked, that you have participated in or done that forfeits your ability to come before Jesus in salvation. So with that said, I'm going to preach as passionately as I can for the sanctity of life. I'm going to declare the truth of God about the judgment of God over sin. But as I say those things, you need to hear them in the context of grace. Those who know the gospel, those who preach the gospel, never preach those hard words simply to condemn. Those hard words are preached that you might hear them, repent of your sin, and turn to Jesus and know His salvation and His forgiveness. So with that said, I want to speak about um, uh, I want to speak from this passage uh, in, in, in these two in these two ways. The, the first is that when we think about value and we think about worth, our value and our worth comes only from God. Right now there is a debate even in our own land about where does value come from and and the two opposing views are, one says value comes from your maker, who God is and what he declared about you. And the other says value is given or ascribed to you by some external force. Usually that external force is the government. So it bestows upon you rights. And I want to make the case this morning, dear friends, that the Bible declares that your right to life That the sanctity of all life is not bestowed upon you by the things of men. It is given to you by your very nature of being created in the image of God. That's the foundational understanding of what gives the uh, sanctity of life. And then secondly, I do want to speak about the reality of the judgment of God. As as Job contemplates his propensity, he's talking about, if I sin against those who are under me and and not equal to me in, in the ways of men, If I mistreat them and I don't respond to them and I don't I don't I don't honor the 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 sanctity that they hold as as people made in the image of God, he very clearly says, I may get away with it this side of heaven, but who what will I say when God requires an answer from me? And so I want to speak a little bit about the judgment of God this morning. But let's begin. Let's begin with how value comes from God. And I just want to say very quickly that, that value is not bestowed by man. So, so Joe begins by, by asking a question that would have been a, a familiar question. In fact, you know, it's interesting as we read this passage. We have almost nothing in common with the culture, with the history, with the world that Job knew versus the world that we know. And yet what he, what he, what he, the, the, the situation that he proffers here is one that we all can understand. So listen to what he says in verse 13. He says, if I have rejected the cause of my maid, manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me. So in other words, there's an unequal relationship, master-slave. And he says, what if I don't I mistreat them. They bring a complaint and I ignore that. That's been happening since Genesis 3. And the reality of it is we know that most often in the context of this world, if one in power mistreats those who are not in power, nothing comes negatively their way. Job says, what then shall I do when God rises up? In other words, there's a judgment coming that is beyond just this world. Friends, value is not bestowed by man. So, Job begins with an example of a situation that's familiar with every generation and culture—a master mistreating his servants. Now, I don't think verse thirteen is about false accusations because Job is giving a defense of his righteousness in this passage, and so he's saying, "What if I did this? Then, even if I got away with it uh, with uh, with men, I still have not gotten away with it." With God. So the situation that he's presenting here is not a situation of someone being falsely accused. In fact, I think he's saying, What if I really mistreated my, my, my servants and they and they brought a complaint that I ignored? It's a, it's a reality of, uh, of referencing a master ignoring the, the righteous complaints of his of his mistreatment of his servants. Now the reality is the sinful nature of man means That when there is an unequal relationship dynamic, it is a ripe opportunity for the more powerful to abuse the less powerful. This is true in every relationship. And so the opportunity of abuse is present when there is master and slave. The opportunity of mistreatment is is present when there is king and there is servant. It's present when there is employer and employee, or parent and child, or or, or even teacher and student. Anytime there is a a, 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 a misalignment of authority and power, there is an opportunity there for the powerful to mistreat the less powerful. Recognizing this reality in uh, in most institution and organizations, there are safeguards that are put into place, but there will always be places where there is no protection for those who are weak and vulnerable. Certainly in the context of a master and slave, the slave has no recourse against their master. And in the present reality of our world, babies in the womb have no recourse at all. Who is representing their voices in the halls of our legislators? Who stands up and defends their right to breathe and live when the abortionist comes for their life. The world assigns value and worth based on race, nationality and citizenship, wealth, social status. Listen to me carefully on this one. Even birth situation. None of these things have any bearing on the worth and value of life. The reason why I point out that birth situation just because I think that even in this room, I would imagine that most of us would would amen the sanctity of life. All life has value, and you say, yes! But then when it gets down to the particulars, that mom who is on public assistance and has multiple children and multiple fathers, can't support the children that she has, maybe has a drug addiction, and she's pregnant again, Are we not guilty sometimes of saying that life, that baby, is not worth life? Dear friends, all life. No matter the particulars and no matter the situation that brought that life to be, all life is valuable. Not because we ascribed value to it, but because God ascribes value to it. Somebody say amen to that. Being made by God, in the image of God, gives every man, woman, and child undeniable value. This value is not given by man, but it is ascribed by God. The government, the Supreme Court, you nor I can determine the value of a life. God alone declares that all life is sacred. So what Job is saying is it doesn't really matter that the realities of human relationship, slave versus master, because God has declared all life is valuable before him. And that's where we must be as well. In fact, Job clearly makes the case in verse 15 that, that all um, stand equal before God. So look at what he says in verse 15. He says, did not he who made me, the master in the womb, make him also the slave and did not one fashion us in the womb? In other words, the making, the fashioning is the same before God, regardless of how we determine our value this side of heaven. Job makes a statement in verse 15 that is contrary to the thinking of man. He's speaking of servants and slaves when he asked the two rhetor- rhetorical questions. Did not God make him and his servants? Did not God not fashion them both in the womb? And these questions point to a foundational truth that all stand equal before God. Now, this side of heaven, in this life, each person will have varying levels of success. Some will amass great wealth. Some will live in great poverty. Some will enjoy great power. Some will be easily forgotten. Some will enjoy tremendous intellect and some will be dim-witted some will have great skills to do things that this world celebrates some will be very very limited in what they can do all these things will be recognized by men in distinguishing characteristics between people we will honor some and not honor others job recognizes that before god All stand equal. In other words, his point is the brilliant and the not so brilliant, the athlete and the clumsy, the wealthy, the poor, the politically powerful, the politically ignored. Those things have distinction and value amongst men and on this earth, but before God, they have zero value. because of the distinctions that we make between each other, we sometimes ascribe to those distinctions worth that we ought not do. Right now in the United States of America, in our own country, babies in the womb have been declared to have no standing before the courts and no rights of protection. Because of this, the will of another is legally protected, even if that means killing the baby within the womb. What Job is saying here is that before the Lord, all stand equal. You may have legal protection here, but that legal protection will not absolve you of sin before the living God. Job makes clear that this status before the Lord does not come after a certain point uh, determined by man. You don't, become, you don't have standing before God after you're born or after you achieve something. No, Job declares that this situation begins even in the womb. From the baby in the womb to everyone who walks the earth, all have equal value before God. Now, my friends, that is the, that's the beginning foundational truth that we must start with when we think about the sanctity of life. But Job also recognizes that there is a second thing at play here, and that is that God will judge. So if I could, if I could outline the passage for you just real briefly. In, in verse 13, he, he sets up the, the issue. What if I sin against those who are powerless before me? In verse 15, he, he declares the theological truth. We're all equal before God. We all have equal, our, each of our lives have sanctity before the, 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 the foundation of God. He is the one who created us and we stand before him equal. But in, the, in between those two verses, verse 14, Job recognizes a reality that we must recognize as well. And that is, even if we find safety and comfort this side of heaven, sin will be judged by the living God. And so he says in verse 14, what then shall I do when God rises up? Now, he understands nobody's going to fault me this side of heaven for doing this. Nobody's going to say a word. In fact, it may even celebrate it as, as the way of the world and the way of man. But what am I going to say when God challenges me? And then he says, what, what makes the, uh, what, when he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? How am I going to respond when God calls me out for such a sin? Friends, the sanctity of life is a theological truth. The reason why I say that is I, I, I want to be sensitive at this point because I recognize that some of you in your families have been been touched by abortion. Maybe you've personally had one. Maybe you've encouraged one to have an abortion. Maybe you have a family member that has an abortion. And, and I, my heart here is not to condemn. Yet I also want to make very clear the danger of sin. So verse 14, Job recognizes that, he, it, it, that if he mistreats his servants, he will be judged. Now, he will not, he's not worried about being judged by man, and he's not being worried even about being judged in this world. But he understands that he cannot and he will not escape the judgment of God. So I say that the, the, the sanctity of life is a theological truth. The sanctity of life is not a political position. Hear me very carefully. Now, what you believe that is true affects how you vote and how you do politics. But this is not first and foremost a political position. Even in the last few years, I've seen some folks who, they, they understood this singularly and secularly as a political position. And so as the realities of politics have changed, they've changed their position on where they stand on the sanctity of life. Dear friends, I don't care if you're a Republican, you're a Democrat, you're an Independent, or something else I've never heard of. The question of where you stand on the the sanctity of life cannot have its beginning and its genesis or its foundation in your politics. It must have its genesis, its foundation, its its beginning with your theology, your understanding of what is true. This is a declaration of God, not a political position from a political party. Not only is it not a political position, it's also not an economic position. Sanctity of life is a theological issue. We're declaring that God is sovereign over all life. We are declaring that God is the one who gives and the only one who can take life. Some of them tried to make a distinction between what they personally hold to and the politics they support. But dear friends, the judgment of God will not make such a distinction. Listen to how Job understands this issue. He understands very clearly the politics of his day is not going to call him out on it. The social norms of his day are unconcerned with this. But his point is this. When it comes to the judgment of God, he won't answer to men, and nor will he stand before the court of men. He'll have to answer to the living God. Sanctity of life is a theological truth. And the sanctity of life and the judgment of God over where we stand on this, we must understand that personal advantage will not excuse our sin. Now, I have struggled with how to articulate this. I don't like the way I put it, but it's the best way I've come up with all week. Personal advantage does not excuse sin. So one of the things that has motivated so much throughout history of the abuse of life, it may have all kind of great political and social theories, but at its heart, is is, is motivated by the advancement of personal advancement. In every generation... The issue that has driven the sanctity of life issues of its day is the personal advantage of those who are in power. The wickedness of slavery in, this, in our own country was held to so tightly and tenaciously because of the economic investment, in part because of the economic investment and advantages that it gave, even though the wickedness of it was so apparent. Economics are behind the decisions of those. Oftentimes, economics are behind the decisions of those chasing after, desiring abortions, and those also offering abortions. This reality of economic advantage was on stark display. Maybe not intentionally, but it was on stark display this past week. You may have seen it, or it may have just flown through your news feed without without you noticing the significance of it, but there is a a man he's a billionaire he's a minority owner of an nBA uh, basketball team the the golden warriors the golden state warriors and he was being interviewed uh, this week about um, uh, general things and he if you if you've been aware, one of the things that has been happening politically is the the relationship between the nBA and, and china and particularly the human rights abuses of China with, a, with the Uyghur people who are essentially being, China is exacting genocide upon them. Well, it's an uncomfortable political position for those involved, but this billionaire, minority owner in an NBA basketball team, said something out loud that may be true about many, but few have said out loud. He said, I don't care. I don't care about the Uyghur people. When he was pushed back against that, his explanation was, it's below my line. It doesn't affect me economically. To care about them hurts me economically. And so he said, I don't care about the weaker people. And one of the things I think is a positive about his statement is, I think it was an honest assessment of where he is. And I think it also was an honest statement about where many people are. Won't care if it doesn't affect my bottom line. If it doesn't advantage me economically, and particularly if it disadvantages me economically, I care even less. Job asked the question that you and I must ask: When God makes His inquiry of us, what shall we say on the issue of abortion? Will you say you weren't ready for a baby? Will you say it wasn't good timing, I was still finishing school? Will you say having a baby at this point would have hurt my career, would have hurt my child's career, derailed our plans? How will that stand before a righteous God? We think about issues of euthanasia. So often what is articulated as reasons for euthanasia are economic issues. When God asked the question about why you encouraged or even participated in taking the life of one who was at the end of their life, will you say, Well, living would have, continuing to live would have been too costly? Continuing to live would have used up my resources that I wanted to give to my children? Living would have been unpleasant? Will that stand before the living God? When God asked, what we will say for ourselves on the abuse of others? Will we say to God, saying something about it will cost me business? I didn't want to get involved. Well, frankly, I just didn't care. Friends, here's the truth. Sin is sin. And God will judge sin. God will judge sin even if the world declares it legal, And even if the world celebrates it, God will judge sin. As followers of Jesus, as servants of the living God, Job understood that his judgment wasn't on the opinion of man, it was only concerned with the opinion of God, with the declaration of God. What will we say when God rises up, when God demands an answer of us? A couple of weeks ago, some news broke that I thought was quite interesting. Some of you, the name Anne Franks may sound familiar to you. She was a a little girl during Nazi Germany. She and her family lived in Amsterdam. They had tried to um, escape the deportation of the Jews and, and to concentration camps, and they hid out in a, behind a secret wall in the attic of a home there in Amsterdam. They were able to, for, to do that um, from 1942 to 1944, but on August the 4th, 1944, someone tipped off the Nazis, the Gestapo that the Franks were hiding in, the, in this home. And on August the 2nd, 1944, the the Gestapo came, they they stormed the house, they arrested Anne, her sister, her mother, and her father, and they took them to concentration camps. Anne, her sister, and her mother would all die in those concentration camps. Her father, Otto, would be the only one who would survive. After the war, um, after he was liberated from a concentration camp, he went back and... um, his secretary had saved Anne's diaries. She had been keeping diaries during those years. And he had them, transla- had them published and translated, and it's why so many of us know Anne Frank, because you can read her diaries today. And it's a day-by-day account of life hiding from the Gestapo and the Nazis. So a couple of weeks ago, Anne Frank, News was made about Anne Frank because an investigation by a former FBI agent has been looking into who was it that sold out the Frank family. It had to be a pretty small group of people. And um, this investigation has revealed a name. Now, nobody will ever know for sure, but they, 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 they brought forth the name of a man who who was serving a, a, a on a council that the Nazis had actually put together that were in charge of the deportation of the, of the Jews, and it was made up all of prominent Jews in the community, and it's believed that this man sold out the Frank family in order to save his own family from going to the concentration camp. This man died in, in 1950, and so, frankly, we'll, we'll never know the truth behind it. But I, as I was reading that news story, I, I was thinking about there, there's a reality. The Bible says that um, all sin... Everything that was done in secret will be known. Now, sometimes you can do something inside of heaven and nobody ever finds out about it. But oftentimes, even the things that you thought you got away with, they come out too. It may be 50, 60, 70 years after the fact, but oftentimes it comes out. Whoever it was sold out the Frank family, I'm sure they thought their, their wicked deed was done in secret and how shameful they would have thought it would have ever come out. But the truth is, friends... Is all coming out. It'll all be revealed. The weight of our own nation's sin, particularly on the issue of abortion, is overwhelming. There were six million people killed in the Holocaust during the Second World War. Six million people. That's worth grieving over, That's worth weeping over. That does not compare to the 63 million babies murdered in our nation alone. That's worth grieving over as well, is it not? That should produce in us a heavy, heavy heart. So what do we do what do we do on a sunday like this we're considering the truth of the sanctity of every life what can you do sitting in your pew what can you do for the sanctity of life here's where i want to encourage you number one where there is sin where there is sin repent Oh, the good news today, friends, is it does not matter how vile or wicked your sin may be. The blood of Jesus is capable and able of covering over that sin. It is true that all sin will be exposed. If you're thinking of some sins that you don't want anybody to know about you right now, that can be a terrifying thought. But the beautiful truth of the gospel is is that when all of my sins are known, they'll be covered over by the blood of Jesus and declared forgiven and put away by his death and sacrifice. And a vile sinner like me will enter into the glory of heaven declared perfect and holy by a perfect and holy. So whatever it is that you have done, it is forgivable by the blood of Jesus. So where there is sin this morning, the call to you is to repent and be forgiven by the grace where there is injustice. Pray for God to protect the innocent and to defend the abused. Pray right now for God's mercy upon our nation by the decision that will be made over dollars, the decision of the Supreme Court. Pray that after that, that the the movement to protect life will continue down to the state houses and even to the very hearts and minds of of our nation. Pray. Where there is injustice, pray for God to protect the innocent and defend the abused. And where you have influence, listen to me, where you have influence in your family, when an unplanned pregnancy comes up, oh, and there may be an embarrassment, there may be a derailing of, of plans, you be the voice for life in that family. Be the voice for life in that family stand to protect that precious child. Where you have influence with your family and your friends, in your community, whatever level you have, stand on the side of life. That when the question is brought to you, where did you participate? What answer can you give? Say, I did all that I could do for the sake of life. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening. And until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the kingdom.